0: What kind of story are we living in? What kind of story are we living in? Is it a comedic story where history is steadily progressing towards some sort of happily ever after? Or is it a tragic story where history is a vain struggle against the unstoppable realities of death and decay? Those who see life as a comedic story, we often call them optimists, don't we? Uh, Their cheery outlook drives innovation and entertainment and hopefulness. Just look at all the progress they tell us. Look at all of our technology, our medicine, our travel, our comforts, the time-saving devices we've invented. Just imagine what tomorrow holds. But the reality is not everything is getting better. Are we really getting better morally, spiritually, relationally, mentally, emotionally, behaviorally, ethically? Are we becoming more loving, more peaceful, more selfless, more faithful, more honest? Are we progressing in terms of our humanity? See, an honest appraisal of the real hardships and gravity of this broken world, frankly, makes much of that comedic optimism seem a bit overhyped. It's a little too shiny, a little too thin, a little too airbrushed. Now, there's a darkness to this world that the neon glow of comedic optimism cannot pierce, which is why some other people see life as a tragic story, We call them pessimists. Although they're very quick to point out they're not pessimists, they're realists, yes. These folks are honest about their, about the pain and struggle that life has to offer and they usually have the scars to prove it. And there's one way to survive disappointment in life and that's not to get your hopes up too high. And it might seem jaded or cynical, but life is really hard and we all die in the end. But that kind of tragic pessimism is unlivable. It's unlivable. It's depressing, it's crushing, and it will ruin us. But there's a third kind of story, a redemptive story. Redemptive stories see the brokenness of the world for what it is. It's tragic, twisted, ruinous, and decaying realities, but in redemptive stories, Oh, and in redemptive stories, things often get much worse before they get better, uh, which is why the book two in any trilogy or most trilogies is usually the worst one, right? Because it's always darkest before the dawn. In a redemptive story, though, the light always breaks through. Hope comes. The king returns. The curse is broken. Evil is vanquished. The good Triumph, and the world is set to rights. Comedic stories hold out hope, but, that, but they tend to ignore life's hardships. Tragic stories are honest about life's hardships, but tend to lose hope along the way. But redemptive stories, redemptive stories see the hardships of reality and the hope of the future at once. Redemptive stories are utterly realistic about the depths of the brokenness of the here and now while courageously holding out hope about the heights of beauty that are to come. For all the darkness and dismay that is here it is all making way for the light and the glory that will break through. And if you ask the Bible, what kind of story are we living in? The Bible will definitively answer, we are living in a redemptive story, a redemptive story. The Bible doesn't give us a feel-good comedy, nor does it curse us to a depressive tragedy. No, the Bible reveals life and history as a cosmic story of redemption, that the world is good, God made it. The world is fallen, we messed it up, and the world will be redeemed. Jesus will save it all. And that redemption, it's more than a fairy tale, it's real. It's happening in space and time. And God is writing this redemptive story in all of history, in his word, and all around us. This redemptive story, it is worth trusting in. It is worth placing your hopes upon. It is worth waiting for. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what these two characters we meet today in our passage are doing. Simeon and Anna, they were waiting for the redemption of God. These two aged saints waiting their whole lives for the redemption of God, and on this day their faith became sight. So grab your Bibles. We're gonna be in Luke chapter two, verses 22 down to 40. You'll find today's reading in the Pew Bible on page 857 over to 858. And in this passage today, It's all about the redemptive story that God is writing, and together we're going to see the sign of redemption, the hope of redemption, and the cost of redemption. The sign, the hope, and the cost of redemption this morning. And I want you to know that as God is writing this redemptive story, it is a story worth trusting in. It's a story worth putting your hope upon, and it's a story that's worth waiting for. Let's lean in to the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you that hope is not a myth. It is not a pipe dream. It is not some sort of fairy tale. That hope is something you are weaving into the fabric of this broken world. And that redemption is not just some wish upon a star, but it, it is real. It is real. It is happening. It is already breaking through, this redemption that you are bringing. And so we cling with hope to the redemptive story you are writing. We put our life and our hopes upon it. Help us to live into this story today by grace, through faith, in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, first of all, the sign of redemption, the sign of redemption. If you'll join me, Luke chapter 2, begin reading here in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, this is uh, Mary and Joseph in the scene here, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph uh, have head now to Jerusalem with baby Jesus. They go up to the temple for two reasons. The first reason is for Mary's purification. According to the Jewish law, after giving birth to a male child, a, a woman was considered unclean for seven days, and then uh, because of the bloodiness of childbirth, and then was, uh, that period was followed by 33 days of confinement uh, for the wellness of the child as well as the mother. And so it's been 40 days now since Jesus was born, and Mary is ready to rejoin society. And so they head up to the temple to make the required sacrifice as her confinement is coming to an end. Uh, normally, this sacrifice would have been a lamb and a turtle dove. Uh, but for those below the poverty line, uh, the allowance was made for either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you want to read about that, that's in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Uh, By the way, this is one of the clearest indicators we have in the Scriptures of just how poor Joseph and Mary were. Uh, By today's standards, they would be on food stamps and in section 8 housing, and this is their life. You see, Jesus came all the way down, all the way down to redeem us. So Mary, having made this sacrifice and having been declared clean by the priest, will now be able to rejoin society and move about freely. That's the first reason for their visit here at the temple. The second reason for their visit is Jesus' redemption, Jesus' redemption. They come to present Jesus to the Lord. Verse 23 explains why, quoting from Exodus 13, verse 2, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In other words, firstborn sons were set apart to the Lord. They were especially belonging to the Lord. And we say, now what's up with that? Well, we have to, the, we, as late modern people, we have a lot of work to do to get ourselves into the mental framework here, but let me just try to give you a glimpse of it. The first thing we need to understand is that in the ancient Near Eastern world, firstborn sons carried significant religious, familial, and economic responsibilities. Uh, when the patriarch of the family died, And when he passed away, it fell to the firstborn son to ensure that the family's religious duties were were followed through. So the offerings and sacrifices that needed to be made, it fell to the firstborn son to make sure that the family was covered religiously. And so the firstborn son served as a kind of mini-priest on behalf of of the family. Now, additionally, the firstborn son was obligated to take over the family trade or business or farm and thus provide for the needs of the of the widow as well as any remaining dependent children. And so the firstborn son was given in the inheritance a double portion of the family estate because he was also given these huge responsibilities to provide and protect for the entirety of the family at large. This meant that the firstborn son in many ways served as the backbone of ancient religious, familial, and economic life. So when God says, the firstborn son, every male who opens the womb for the first time shall be called holy to the Lord. This one belongs to me. God is laying claim to the backbone of their ancient world, their religious, familial, economic life. He says, he's saying, look, your name, your family, your business, your wealth, your security, your entire life, it's all a gift of grace from my hand. It all ultimately belongs to me, and you owe me your everything. So that's what this means. This firstborn belongs to me. Your everything belongs to me. That's what God is saying. But it goes even deeper than that. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you will find that God's claim to the firstborn sons is actually anchored specifically in the fact that he spared them in the final plague that he brought upon Egypt. You'll remember in that last plague, all the firstborn males in Egypt, man and beast, uh, were, they died except those who were saved by the blood of the lamb that was on the doorposts and the lentils, uh, that lamb that was sacrificed. And those who were covered by the blood of the lamb, the people of Israel, their firstborns were spared. And God says, since I spared your firstborns, they belong to me. They belong to me. Numbers eight, verse 17. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, the Lord says, both man and beast. On that day, on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. So all the firstborn animals from that day forward were designated as sacrificial animals in Israel. They belong to the Lord. And firstborn sons, well, they belong to the Lord too. And they had to be redeemed. They had to be redeemed. In Numbers 18, verse 16, uh, the law specifies that these firstborn sons were to be redeemed with a payment of five silver shekels that were paid to the priest in the temple to redeem those sons, to buy them back, to purchase them and set them free. So buy them from the Lord. It was called the redemption of the firstborn. You can read more about this in Exodus thirteen, verses thirteen to fifteen, where God explains the reasoning for this. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, when when in time it comes, and your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery, and when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the wound, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see it there. So every time a firstborn son was born in ancient Israel into these Jewish families, they would have to present their sons to the Lord in the temple and pay the price of redemption to set them free. And you see what they're doing as they enact this, this, uh, this ritual, this sign. They're, they're acknowledging that they're living in a redemptive story. That that we are a part of this redemptive story that God is writing in history. That God redeemed us as a people from slavery in Egypt. That he set us free. He saved us by the blood of a lamb. He rescued our sons and gave them back to us. They didn't die. We owe God our life, our breath, our everything else, our firstborn sons. It all belongs to him. He is our great redeemer and we live in his story. And so, as Mary and Joseph are redeeming their firstborn son here, they present Jesus to the Lord. They pay these five silver shekels. They're acknowledging that they, too, live within the redemptive story of God. They owe their everything to God's redeeming mercies and His saving grace. And how much more is that true of you and me, friends, who have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who died in our place and for our sake, the Lamb that was slain, who rose again to make us right with God and set us free forever. Oh, the point for Mary and Joseph and Jesus and for us is that God has redeemed, and we owe Him our everything. God has redeemed, and we owe Him our everything. Friends, we live in God's redemptive story, don't we? Every time we celebrate communion, this is what we're celebrating. We're observing the Lord's table. We're acknowledging that we live in the redemptive story of God, that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price Far more than five silver shekels, we have been redeemed with the precious blood of the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain, who takes away the sins of the world, who is right now in Mary's arms, presented in the temple in this sign of redemption. You see it? This sign of redemption. Now, secondly, let's let's see here the hope of redemption. The hope of redemption... to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, this is amazing. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. (laughs) What a scene. So Mary and Joseph, they're walking up into the temple, and this elderly guy walks up, and he says, Can I hold your child? (laughs) And he lifts him in his arms, and he speaks this beautiful blessing over his life. Luke tells us he's been waiting for this day, Simeon. The Holy Spirit is revealed to him, that he'd see the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, before his dying day. He was waiting, verse 25 says, for the consolation of Israel. We're going to meet another lady in just a few verses down in verse 38, Anna. And she is also waiting. She's waiting, verse 38 says, for the redemption of Jerusalem. Same idea. So you have these two elderly elderly, uh, characters, these two older a lady and a man waiting for God to bring redemption, to bring consolation to Israel. They're waiting for salvation, for light, for glory to break through. They knew of God's redeeming work in the past, how God had been faithful. He brought them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought them into a land of promise flowing with milk and honey. They knew that God was faithful. And even when Israel had wandered away from God, worshiping false gods and acting unjustly against their fellow men, and God sent them into exile, into captivity, under the foreign powers of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then later the Greeks, God was faithful. He brought them back into the land. But that redemption was not complete. Even though Israel was back in the land under the Roman oppressors, She had no real king. She had no real sovereignty. She had no real freedom. And so Simeon and Anna are waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting. They're anticipating the redemption of the people of God. They're longing for salvation to come, for the promised Messiah to arrive, the Anointed One. David's heir who will take up the throne. Abraham's seed that will fulfill the ancient promises. Adam's son who will crush the serpent's head. And all these long years they've been waiting. Day after day, month after month, year after year with prayers and fasting and deep longing. Because they knew, they knew what we know. And that is that God will redeem And we look to him for everything. God will redeem. And we look to him for everything. Simeon and Anna were awaiting both Jesus' first and second comings, although they couldn't distinguish between those two at this time. And you and I are likewise waiting We're waiting. We're having tasted the inauguration of Jesus' redemptive work. We are awaiting the fullness that will come when Jesus returns and sets all things to rights. And we shall be like him, for we shall see him face to face. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Oh, we're waiting. What God has begun in his past redeeming work, we now await with eager expectation for the fullness of redemption that is to come. Oh, God will redeem, and we look to him for everything. Can you just imagine the emotion that must have been in Simeon's voice as he holds this little... Jesus in his arms, my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel." Notice Simeon's hopes are for Israel, yes, but they're far beyond that. He knows that Messiah's light will shine far beyond Israel's borders. His coming means great glory for Israel, yes, but it also means great light for the Gentiles, for the nations, and the disclosing of the plan and the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. And Simeon says, now, now I can die A happy man, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And in his arms lies the hope of redemption. You see, the hope of redemption. So the sign of redemption, the hope of redemption, and now the cost of redemption, the cost of redemption. Verse 34 And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, into their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I I, I imagine this must have been a very sweet day for these two elderly folks, these saints that have been waiting so long. They've been battered by hardship. The sorrows of life they've faced, they've mourned loss, and yet through it all, they're clinging to hope, aren't they? Hope in the redemption of God. All these years, waiting. And then in this moment, their faith becomes sight. Christ is come. What a sweet day this is. But amidst all the sweetness, There's something ominous here too. Did you see it? Something ominous. It's in Simeon's statement in verses 34 to 35. He directs it to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This child will bring upheaval in the nation. Many will rise with him in loyalty and belief, and many will fall because of him in rejection and unbelief of the Messiah. He will be a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus' coming, friends, will cleave the world in two. The hearts of some will be drawn to him in worship and faith and trust, while others will reject him and oppose him and hate him. And I imagine Mary's eyes must have widened at the these ominous warnings. And Simeon pauses mid-sentence and he looks her straight in the eye. And he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. Mary, this baby boy that you dearly love, his life is not gonna be an easy one. He will be despised and rejected. He will be betrayed and crucified, he will be nailed and pierced through. And don't you see the, cr- the cross is looming large over the scene? Have you ever considered how pierced to the core Mary must have been as she stood there at the foot of the cross and watched her baby boy die a death that wasn't his to die? She heard his very first cries of life And she heard him cry out and breathe his last. It must have gone all the way down. But Simeon knows this is how it must be. The redemption of Israel can only come this way through the sufferings of the servant of the Lord. It's what Isaiah had prophesied. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we have been healed. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, don't you see? This is the price of redemption right here. All those years before, the redemption of God came at a price, a cost. The blood of a lamb that was sacrificed so that the firstborn sons might go free. And now, once again, the, the pr- redemption comes at a price. And it will again be the blood of the lamb. But this time it will be God who gives his firstborn son as the lamb who was slain so that all the sons and daughters might go free. Friends, you see, God is redeeming. He is redeeming. And we're receiving his everything. We're receiving his everything. Even though we owe God our, our everything, he's giving us his everything in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, that he gave, gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16, for we've been redeemed as 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, we've been redeemed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Simeon and Anna know, friends, they want us to know that redemption is here and His name is Jesus. Friends, this is the redemptive story we live in. God has redeemed the past and we owe Him our everything. God will redeem in the future. We look to him for everything, and God is redeeming. Even now, we are receiving his everything because redemption is here, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> friends, friends, here's the reality. You and I, we need this redemptive story. We need this redemptive story because life is hard. Simeon knows that life is hard. Anna knows that life is hard. Mary knows that life is hard. And you and I know that life is hard. If you don't think it's hard, you're very young. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, what you and I need is not a feel-good comedy. That's a distraction. This is a story, this is not a feel-good comedy. This story, the story of Jesus, it'll pierce you to your soul. It's full of crucifixion and blood and graves. But neither is this a depressive tragedy, because there are lights and glories that are breaking through. And in Jesus, crucifixions turn into resurrection mornings. And blood turns to blessing. And graves turn to gardens. This is a redemptive story. It is our redemptive story. It is the story we live in by grace through faith in Christ. And it is a story that is worthy of your trust. It is worth hoping in. It is worth waiting for. This is the story of Jesus, our light, our glory, and our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, redemption is here and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have not left us in a cheap comedy that blinds itself to the horrors and hardships of life, nor have you left us in a tragic story that ends in misery and lostness. You have embedded us in the glorious story of redemption that feels the weight of this broken world and yet is undaunted in the hope of the glories to come. You are making all things new. You are rescuing and redeeming A crack has opened in the hard, brittle walls of this world and light is shining in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we grab a hold of Him, for He is the conveyor of hope in our world, and through Him all things will be made new. We thank You for Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, Your firstborn given to set us free. He is our light. He is our, our hope. He is our glory. And it's in our great Redeemer's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.